At this time, we're going to hear the preaching of God's word. What a gift it has been to listen to Jason preach for the past 14 years, and what a gift it is to do so one last time today. If you would like to follow along with the sermon, you can do so on the YouVersion app on your smartphone. It's been good to be here and been so blessed by you. Um, I feel very loved by you over the years. I love you and the way you've loved my family and encouraged us through good times, bad times, sickness, health, you know, on and on. You've been such a huge blessing to us. What's really encouraging and always has been encouraging is to see, even this morning, some former students coming back. I know a lot of you are college students, but to think that one day you'll actually get older perhaps get a job and get married, maybe. But to see some come back, I see Lauren Darling over here. Lauren Darling is one of the first college students I met, I don't know, probably in 2003, and now he's like married, four kids. Man. <laughs> Jessica, your great wife, and, and Brad and, and Lauren and Beth Hutter, they, they were here forever ago, and now they're like old It's just great. Lorna Beth used to live with us before she got married to Brad, and so we got to be part of their wedding. It's just something kind of cool when you see students show up at 18 and then watch them age and watch them grow in the Lord. But get this. Foundations start when you're young, right? They get built. You get locked in. You grow deep. And now the person you may be later is determined a lot by what you do now in growing in the Lord. Well, as it's my last Sunday... Um, Maybe I should have written a special send-off sermon, but I didn't. What I'm trying to teach you in not writing a special send-off sermon is I just simply want to continue to go through books, and whatever's up next is what I'm going to preach, and so my special send-off sermon is the text that we're going to find today uh, as we're going through Ecclesiastes, and it's a really encouraging topic of death and judgment. What a great last one, yeah. I've been known to preach on death and judgment a lot. It's not because I particularly want to pick those topics, it's because what's what often comes up in the Bible. But as we think about death and judgment, we can be encouraged that we don't need to fear as believers. We don't need to fear death, and we don't need to fear judgment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to start this morning by telling you about a man who thinks a lot about death. Let me tell you about a man named Alan Ball. I think some of you may know him, of him. When he was 13, he was in the car with his 22-year-old sister, and she was driving him to his piano lesson. And they got into a wreck, and she was killed. Six years later, his father died of lung, lung cancer at his house. He got to see it all unfold. And what happened, these events started to shape him for his later part of his life, part of his work. You may know of him or of the movie uh, American Beauty that he uh, wrote a screenplay for, and it won uh, an Academy Award in, in the year 2000. You see, one of the main points of that movie is that in view of your coming death, you want to live in a right way, and some would say even in a moral way. Alan Ball also did the HBO show Six Feet Under. 
The show is about a family who runs a funeral home, and the show always, uh, always begins by showing a corpse, figuring out how to truly make sense of life in the face of death is kind of weaved throughout the plot. And that's kind of what his aim has been in some of these writings. Is like, if you're going to die, how should you then live in view of your coming death? Now, some people really like shows like this, movies like this. I, I'm one of them. Like when a movie ends like really good and great and everything's put together and it's like a Hollywood princess story, tell, story you know, any, I hate those movies. I do. It's like, that's not life. But when someone like dies and tragedy and something and the movie just ends, that's a good movie. Because what we're trying to see in view of our coming death, how should we live? And so people go out of the theater and they make some adjustments to their life. But as good as those shows and movies may be, I still feel like they fall short of a certain perspective. And here's the missing perspective I see in those movies and shows. It's missing the perspective of judgment after death. You see, I believe that not only our coming deaths should shape the way we live, but the fact that every single person in here, even whether you believe it or not, will one day stand before God and be judged. And I believe that death and coming judgment should shape the way we live now. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. And where we're going to do that is in the book of Ecclesiastes. So go ahead and turn there. If you haven't turned there already, look on the person next to you. We're going to be finishing up chapter 3, Ecclesiastes three sixteen through 22. So go ahead and stand as I read the text. Starting at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. A man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You may be seated. Ecclesiastes obviously is an Old Testament book, and as we've been going through it, we see a lot of life's frustration and apparent meaninglessness. And we've seen that our only hope is to fear the Lord and freeing us to enjoy these blessings as we look forward to Jesus Christ in eternity with him. The phrase that we've been harping on throughout is, life is gift, not gain. Life is gift, not gain. We are not here to squeeze everything we can gain out of this life, but we're to enjoy it as a gift. We're to enjoy what he has given us, creation. We're to enjoy our work. We are to enjoy giving and helping and serving others. Rather than trying to push and gain as much as we can 
out of this life before we die. Life is gift, not gain. And as we ended the previous week at the end of verse 15, there's this little phrase that says, and God seeks what has been driven away. And the NIV, I think another translation says, and God will call the past to account. Let that go in your brain a little bit. God will call the past to account. And that little comment right there sets us up for the section we're going to look at today. That God is going to call every single human to give an account for their life and the judgment. Start with verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The teacher is giving us some observations under life, under the sun on this earth, that while we live here, people can become pretty oppressive. Governments can become oppressive. Systems can be oppressive. And this is especially seen in the law courts, where here it's said that right is called wrong and wrong is called right by those who had positions of authority. And typical wrongdoing in the Old Testament is depriving the poor of their rights, withholding justice from those who are oppressed. And so we're talking about life as gift, not gain. But how can those eat and drink and enjoy life when someone else's foot is on their neck? Perhaps you've seen the woman who represents justice with the blindfold on and scales. Well, there is this image by Peter Ehrlich of this same woman with the blindfold on and the scales of justice, but in her back was a sword, as if justice could not be attained. And next to the, this picture was an image, was a quote by the African-American journalist Ida Barrett-Wells, who wrote early last century. And I want to share this quote with you. She says, I firmly believed all along that the law was on our side and would, when we appealed to it, give us justice. I feel short of that belief but utterly discouraged and just now, if it were possible, would gather my race and my arms and fly away with them. Oh God, is there no redress, no peace, no justice in the land for us? And since the fall of human beings, that has been the cry, is there no justice? And I know that, that the, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, it's become cool and trendy to talk about justice and injustice. I wish it wasn't a trend. I wish it was something we, we continued to see in our society. But understand this. As much as we, especially as Christians, should fight for justice and against injustice, this world is st still going to be a fallen place. And we will not see this complete justice one day in these broken courts and this broken world until one day we are with the Lord. But this justice will come. It will come. And we know this justice will come because the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, God will call the past to account. Nothing gets by God. <laughs> He's not going to let oppression slide. He's not going to let injustice slide. He will call the past to account. Look at verse 17. 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Well, that's interesting that it seems like the oppressors are not the only ones that are going to have to give an account for their wicked actions. Not only them, but everyone is going to stand before God and be judged. There's going to be an appropriate time for God's judgment. And since it's one of my, uh, not one of my, it is my last time with you, I want to ask the question, I want to make sure everyone understands this. When you die, because you will, and you stand before God to be judged, as you will, what will be God's standard of judgment? Why will he accept you, embrace you? Some of you may say, well, just be a good person. Maybe you have to think about keeping some certain rituals. What's going to be the standard of judgment? When you die, why would God let you into heaven? Well, here's the standard. This is how you get in. You on this earth have to be perfect. You have to be holy and you have to be righteous just like God the Father. And if you're not perfect, holy, and righteous, you will not get in. So you may ask the question, well, then who gets in? (laughs) Well, on your own, no one. And this is the gospel message. The good news that we preach is that there is one who is holy, perfect, and righteous. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who stepped down and lived this perfect life that I couldn't live, you couldn't live. And we are told from the scriptures and believe from history that he was crucified on the cross in the place of sinners like you and like me. And on the cross... Jesus had wrath poured on him instead of me and on you. He was buried and he rose again. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're done here, right? We believe he actually rose, proving that he conquered sin and Satan and death. Okay, so far so good. But now the call is all of those who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus can be accepted by the Father. And we know from reading the word that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other access to heaven except through Jesus and putting your faith in him. Now, that's good news for us who are believers, but at times it gets challenged. So think about this. Last week I was at my daughter's eighth grade graduation. Now, eighth grade graduation is a new thing for me. When I grew up, we didn't have that kind of thing. You just kind of move on to the next grade. But in this neck of the woods, eighth grade graduation is a big deal, huge ceremony, pictures packed, can't even get a seat. While I'm there, looking at my daughter on the stage, next to me, around me, there's a Muslim family. Over there is a Hindu family, families from all different types of religions fill in this place. And what I'm saying to you right now, and it's hard to believe that those nice families, good people, friends of my daughter, people we'd like, enjoy, hang out with, 
We are saying that those good people, when they die and stand before God, if they do not have Christ in their place representing them through faith, they will be judged in the sense of cast out to hell forever. Now that's hard to accept because you're thinking, these are nice people. Surely God will make an exception. But you see, from God's standard and viewpoint, there is no one who is perfect. There is no one who is righteous. And all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all need Christ. And Christ did not come just to save a certain people from a certain country. He came to save people from all over the world who want to come to him and put their faith in him because he is the only way to the Father. So there's the standard of judgment. Complete perfection and holiness, and you only get it through faith in Jesus. So that's the judgment part. Let's now turn our attention to the death part. Once I was in a small group, and the leader gave us a nice little icebreaker. He said, um, how would you like to die or not die? Now, that was a very sobering uh, exercise. So we went around the circle and said, I'd like to die this way, but I would not like to die that way. All right? But God doesn't want us to ignore the fact that we are going to die. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beast. <laughs> God wants you to see that you're like the animals. God doesn't want you to live in a dream world that does not face reality, so he enables you to understand that you are like the animals. You're like, okay, in what way am I like the animals? Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Now, there's that word vanity again. Remember that it's the Hebrew, comes from the Hebrew word uh, hebel, which means pointless vapor, and depending upon the context, we know how to interpret the word. And in this context, it means that life is fleeting. So just like the animals will die, so you will die. In fact, you have no advantage over the animals because just as your dog died or your cat died or your fish died, so you will die. And so in this sense, you have no upper hand over the animals because we're all going to die. And then verse 20. All go to one place, all from the dust, and to dust all return. This is some phrasing that you may have heard on uh, for those of you who celebrate Ash Wednesday, you know, you go and you get the ashes, sign of the cross on your head. For those of you who've done that, I've done that in the past, what do you do? Do you go home and look in the mirror and you go, oh, I forgot that was there. I've got to get this mess off my head. Or do you go, oh, wow, dust. From dust I came, dust I'm going. I'm going to die. That's kind of the point of it, right? Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. 
Now, later in the book, the, the teacher actually believes that man's spirit rises. He believes that because he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Basically what I'm getting at, right now his resurrection theology is not as fully developed at this time in redemption history, but he does understand that the spirit returns to God after death. And if the spirit, if he believes the man's spirit rises upward, then why does he ask the rhetorical question? Look at the rhetorical question again in verse 21. Who knows where the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? This is what he's talking about. When you're just watching animals or people and they die from your perspective on this earth you have resurrection theology you know you know you're going to be judged but from what you can tell everything just seems the same dog dies human dies from our perspective it just looks the same it looks like they all just go into the ground so you would think of of the talking about Death is the great leveler of humans and animals. Now, let me make you feel a little bit better right now. You have an advantage over animals. And here is your advantage. You have the ability to reason. I know your dog and cat is smart. I get that. But you have the ability to reason and think about your life and examine it, knowing that you're about to die. So I have two dogs. I don't claim them. They decide to live in my house with my family. One dog is named uh, Teddy. He is a golden doodle, not very smart. The other one is named Emmy. She is a sheep doodle. She's dumber than him. So I love my animals. No, I really don't. But anyway, Emmy, she's kind of fun to play with sometimes. But what she likes to do is she likes to chase pine cones. She does. She, I mean, and we, I kick them and she chases them. She chews on them. She chews on them so much her mouth bleeds. If she's really into pine cones. Like, I mean, it is her thing. But, you know, when she's playing with pine cones, she never like stops and says, you know, I'm going to die one day. Why am I wasting my time playing with pine cones? Such a waste. Now, my dog, Emmy, can't do that. But you can. Do you ever just step back and go, why am I, why am I acting this way? Why am I being so mean to other people? Why am I disrespecting? I'm, I'm going to die. It's not the way I want to be known for after I'm dead, just mean person. What about what you do with your time? Do you, do you waste your time? Like, well, I'm going to die. I'm going to be judged one day. What am I wasting my time pursuing these things? If I'm going to die, face, face God one day. Do I really want to have you doing this right now? Especially if you're into immorality or some foolishness. and greed. Like, why am I doing this? So you have the ability to reason. You can think about these things. My dog cannot, but you can trying to get our attention to wake us up to the fact that we will all die and one day be judged. And God will call the past to account. Finish up verse 22. 
So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So here's the deal. If you know you're going to die, and if you know you're going to be judged, you want to live in such a way where you're not trying to get gain, not trying to accumulate all the pine cones that you can accumulate, but live life as gift, not gain. And we've seen previously, the way you live a life as gift is that you try, by God's grace, to enjoy your work, to enjoy your family, to enjoy being a servant, loving others. You try, by God's grace, to go outside, enjoy what the gift of creation and human beings that he's given you to interact with, because life is gift and not gain. But there still is going to come a day where you are going to die. And it may be a slow death. It may be long. And you're going to have a lot of reflections on your life. Many of you know that I'm going to a church where the average age is 70. Going to a a church with a lot of people that are reflecting back on their life. There was once a nurse working with dying patients. You've heard about her. She recorded five regrets of the dying. Five regrets of the dying. And the number one regret was this. Courage to live a life true to yourself and not what others expected of you. And from a Christian perspective, we would say, live a life true to your identity in Christ, which frees us to see life as gift, not gain. As you reflect back on your life, you want to say, okay, did I live out my identity in Christ? Or was I trying to impress people? Was I afraid of people? Or were I truly living out my identity in Christ and what he's called me to be? So let's go back to where we started at the beginning. We started with uh, Alan Ball and then his movies and his TV shows that he makes. And then they're about death. And when people see these movies... Maybe they leave the theater and they think, you know, I really need to forgive someone. I need to make some changes in my life. And I'm not talking about the kind of changes where you go and watch Rocky and then you need to go work out. I'm talking about that. People leave the theater and they're thinking, I need to make some changes in my heart. And they go out and they make some changes. But I keep coming back to, yeah, but there's judgment even after your death. So don't just think about your death. Think about judgment. So how are you going to stand before a holy God one day? How are you going to do that? Well, here's the good news. This is so cool. You ready for this? Here's the good news. Who is your Savior? You wonder who's going to save me? All right. The Savior is the judge. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? The judge lived a sinless life. The judge was put on the cross in the place of sinners. The judge was killed and rose again three days later. And when we die, we're not to fear in the sense of being cast out of the judge's presence, but the judge has come down to welcome us, to embrace us, to save us from wrath and hell through his life, death, and resurrection.
And I want to say one last time, if you are hoping on anything else besides Jesus Christ at the day of judgment, just know that you've been warned that in your lifetime, you heard about the good news of Jesus. And it's not about being good, because I am the most non-good person you've ever met. When I was 19 years old, that's when I came into this relationship with Jesus. I had lived a life of sexual morality, anger, hurting people, foul mouth. And Jesus invaded my life, not because I cleaned my life up, not because I was a good person. Jesus invaded my life at 19. And now this foul mouth, sexually immoral person is preaching the word to you today by God's grace. And it's through faith in him that you don't need to fear death. It's through faith in Jesus that you don't need to fear judgment. And if you truly believe in Christ and by his grace, you can live today not pursuing gain, but live life as a gift. Because life is gift, not gain. Let's pray. Father, you know the people that are here this morning. You know their hearts. You know what's going on with them. And Lord, if there is someone here this morning, many someones here who need to put their faith in you, they're not sure what's going to happen after they die, and they haven't even really thought about it much, may you speak to them now, may you awaken their heart now that they would put their faith in Jesus. And if they need to investigate some more, learn more about you, may you stir them up to consider Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for intervening in our wickedness. Thank you for clothing us in your, in your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us we do not need to fear death nor judgment, for we have life, eternal life in you. In Christ's name, amen.